The Lifestylist, episode 159, featuring Candice Kumai. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Okay, guys, I'm about to let one of my best kept secrets out of the bag. That's right. It's not going to be a secret anymore. I'm talking about Tonic Wellness Boutique. It's located in central LA, a few blocks from the Beverly Center and the Grove. Tonic Wellness Boutique offers a combination of hot and cold relaxation therapies. Now, you see me talking about this stuff all the time. You know what I'm talking about. The cryotherapy, the saunas, the whole deal all proven to simultaneously revitalize and rest the body, improve blood circulation, and help activate the lymphatic system to help detoxification. Now, if you live in a city like LA or you're just traveling to a city like LA, dude, you got to detox for real. These methods also help to reduce inflammation and improve skin tone while actively promoting the release of endorphins. Those are your happy hormones. That's why things like cryotherapy and infrared saunas feel so good. They've also got something called cryoskin, which I recently did a round of, and uh, it's pretty badass. It pretty much melts fat off any part of your body. So a lot of actresses and stuff go in there. You know, it's confidential. I wish I could tell you who they were, but they're people you've heard of and models as well. Go in there and get like the fat under their chin or on the back of their arms. I just did straight up my belly and I'm seeing great results from it. It was pretty amazing and it was a lot easier than working out really hard. So they have the saunas, the cryotherapy, the cryo skin, and then they have something called pressotherapy, which uh, will help you look better, feel better, and function better. They have all the latest biohacking stuff over there. So go to tonicboutique.com to learn more they're really cool people. Posetta, the owner, is just a fantastic person. They're super friendly and knowledgeable. And it's a great place to go, not only to feel good, but to look good. It's very Hollywood-centric. It's a very high-vibe, well-designed environment. They have, of course, the clear light saunas, which are the best saunas in the world. Otherwise, I wouldn't even probably go in the saunas they have there because most of them are really high EMF and super whack. So these guys are doing it right. It's a one-stop shop. So go to tonicboutique.com to learn more. If you live in LA, you should just be there at least once a week or once a month. If you're visiting LA, I would straight up land at LAX, go to Tonic Boutique, and then continue the rest of your trip. Tonicboutique.com. This episode is brought to you by Biostrap, the latest and greatest in wearable tech where you can track your sleep, your workouts, your meditation, just about anything that you can think of that you do in your day-to-day life. Now, I talk a lot about sleep on the show. I've interviewed so many experts that also emphasize how important quality sleep is, but you don't really know how good your sleep is unless you're tracking it. Womp, womp. So you can use the BioStrap to very accurately track all kinds of different biomarkers during your sleep. 
I also use it a lot for meditation. It's really fun just to kind of challenge yourself and see how high of a score or low of a score, depending on what you're looking for, uh, that you can get during different activities. You can also program custom workouts, uh, custom movements, whether it be running, any kind of high intensity workout, even doing like a bench press, doing yoga, doing anything that you do for physical fitness. And I think it's really important to not just know what's going on, but be able to track it and actually mark your improvements, right? So if you're not tracking something, you don't really know if you're getting better at it. And I like to get better at all kinds of things, including things like sleep and meditation. You might not think about it, but how well you're meditating is actually really important. So I love just geeking out on this. I hook up you know, various biohacking devices and things like that, and I see how deeply I can meditate or how hard I can work out what's happening in the ice bath and cryotherapy and even the sauna and all the different things that I do. It's very fascinating to be able to measure what's happening in your body. So if you want to check out Biostrap, which I highly recommend you do, you'll want to go to biostrap.com forward slash Luke. And as always, folks, I got a hookup for you. Enter the promo code STORY and you'll save 25% off of your order. So again, go to biostrap.com forward slash Luke. Enter the code STORY. Enjoy. This is just the best ever, man. You're here listening to this podcast. I'm here on the microphone delivering it to you back in time, traveling into the future to meet you where you are, to bring you today's guest, Candice Kumai. It's just fantastic, the world we live in. I'm so excited to do what I do. My name is Luke Story. I've got a website called lukestory.com. That's the mothership. That's where you can find out just about anything you want to know about me. Uh, even even my age and net worth. No, I'm just kidding. You, you know, you got to Google people for that stuff. But I don't think you'd find mine because I'm not famous enough. What? Psych. But here I am doing this damn podcast with Candace and it's going to be another bomb ass episode. We're going to be talking about a little something called Kintsugi or the art of golden repair. This is a fun and very informative episode. But before we get into this rabbit hole with Candace that we might actually never come out of, to be honest, we might just disappear in there and all this Japanese goodness. Let's talk about this Friday's bonus episode. It's a bootleg broadcast, yours truly live at Bulletproof Upgrade Labs in Santa Monica, where I'm talking about the art of spirit hacking. I do a deep dive into my spiritual practice and talk about why I believe that's more important than anything we can do on the material, physical level. The biohacking is great. I love it. I do it all. But the purpose of the biohacking is just to make room for the spirit to flourish. And that's what I talk about for about two hours this Friday on a bootleg broadcast. Then next Tuesday, oh man, this is a good warm up for next Tuesday. Candace brings the heat and it's going to get even hotter with our guest, Danielle Laporte. And uh, wow, I don't know what to say about that one, but that was one of the most fantastic conversations I've ever had. So today you get Candace, Friday you get a bootleg broadcast from your old pal Luke, and then next Tuesday, Daniel Laporte. But you know what needs to happen in order for you to get these episodes, right? You've got to subscribe to the show. That way they get uploaded to your device. So let's go ahead and take care of that right now as you're listening to me speak. Then I want to let you know about a couple upcoming events that I'll be uh, speaking at. I was about to say performing at, and I guess <laughs> it's like maybe I'll be performing in a sense. I'll be speaking at one of my favorite events in the whole world. It's Mercado Sagrado in Malibu Canyon. This is just the most epic hippie fair 
consciousness bonanza extravaganza ever on the face of the earth, maybe even the known universe. Mercado Sagrado is October 13th and 14th. And uh, I'll be doing a whole biohacking lounge there. If you hear all the stuff that I talk about, if you follow me on Instagram, which you should, I'm at Luke Story. Uh, you'll see that I'm up to all kinds of crazy hijinks all the time. I'm bringing all my stuff to Mercado Sagrado and I'm going to let you try it. You're going to come into my lab and I'm going to freak you out, son. So uh, come to Mercado Sagrado, October 13th and 14th. I'll also be doing a great talk there on spirituality and meditation. Then I'll be going back to my friends at Whitma Live in New York City, October 25th for an epic day all about consciousness. That is an insane event. You guys can't miss that one. So I'm not leaving out the East Coast. And then also I'll be doing a very special workshop at Rama Institute on the Lower East Side in New York City, October 27th in celebration of my 48th birthday. It's going to be a night of Scorpio badness and goodness in the best sense. So those are the events. If you want to come to those events or any others, you can always find them here, lukestory.com forward slash events, lukestory.com forward slash events. Some of them are free. Some of them you got to throw down some cash. But in any case, it would be great to meet you in person because let's face it, I'm here alone on this side of the mic. I don't even know what you look like. I don't even know who you are. Are you out there? Can you hear me? Come say hi. Come hang out. Come say what's up. Don't be shy. Don't be weird. Come get in my face and we're going to hang out and get to know each other. Candice Kumai, the lady of the hour. She's an internationally renowned wellness writer, chef, and content creator described as Elle Magazine as the golden girl of the wellness world. And I would have to agree. Actually, she is kind of golden, you know, at least her skin on the outside. And after this interview, I think you'll believe uh, and agree with me that she's golden on the inside too. There you go. She's the host of Wabi Sabi, the Perfectly Imperfect podcast, of which I'm a fan. She's also the author of Kintsugi Wellness, the Japanese art of nourishing mind, body, and spirit. I've got a copy of that in my kitchen as we speak. And if I ever learn how to cook one day, I might just open it up and give it a shot. So Candace brings me some incredible matcha cookies. Uh, the recipe for them, in fact, are on her YouTube channel if you want to check it out. I downed them all, got a complete sugar rush, was probably a total spaz in this interview. But the basics of this uh, talk are this. In Japanese culture, if an object of value breaks, there's an art form that involves putting it back together with lacquer and golden power. It's called kintsugi or the art of golden repair. The repaired object is then considered more beautiful than it was before. A recognition that imperfections and differences are part of our story and part of what makes us attractive. There's also another Japanese art called wabi-sabi, which I just love that name, which is essentially the aesthetic philosophy that things can be perfectly imperfect. And as someone who has wrecked his life multiple times and put it back together a few, I can appreciate the metaphor. Here's what we talk about in this conversation with Candace. Birth, destruction, and rebirth as a natural cycle and how sometimes the resurgence is the most beautiful part. How Candace's parents met through war in a Buddhist temple. What is wabi-sabi? Why Candace gravitated so strongly toward her Japanese heritage over her Polish heritage. How part of being honorable and humble is letting your work speak for itself. The benefits of drinking vodka from a biohacker's perspective. The mouth-watering photography and Kintsugi wellness, which Candace did herself. What people do differently in the blue zones, the areas where people live the longest and the happiest lives. 
Why your health really begins when you buy your first Vitamix. Why cooking is one of the only resources you have to change your whole life through simple ingredients and actions. Gaman, the art of high resilience, humility, and endurance. Working with integrity and authenticity. And then finally, Candace poses the question, how can we as public figures be of use to you, the listeners, the consumers of the content? So this is a really fun yet uh, deep and meaningful conversation with Candace. I had a really great time hanging out with her and I know that you will too. So put on your earphones and listen up as we take a journey with Candace Kumai. Candace, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. So you guys listening, we've been having a really great time. We're drinking <laughs> tea. She brought me these crazy matcha cookies, which I am <laughs> really dying to devour. If you're watching this on YouTube, you could see they're right near uh, her book here on our table. We made a little prop styling situation. So I'm glad we got to get this in. Me too. You're in California. I know we were contemplating setting it up on Skype, but as my listeners know, uh, I prefer to avoid Skype if possible, mm. as for reasons we discussed earlier. The rapport is just better when you can hang out with someone. Yeah, for sure. I agree. So the first thing I want to talk about is Kintsugi Wellness. <laughs> Tell me how to say that, your so, new book. Kintsugi, Kintsugi Wellness. You said it right. Yeah. Okay, I did. Okay. Oh, and I also wanted to request that you do the entire interview in your mom's voice. Oh, easy. <laughs> She'd be like, first, uh, we need to take the cookie away from the cookie over here. She's going to eat the chocolate. It's bad for her. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I pulled up in my mom's car. <laughs> oh, my God. Luke was outside walking. I won't make cookie. the stereotypical joke right now. Oh, my God. Now. It was so... Well, I'm not PC, but... Yeah, it was a white Japanese mom car. Yeah. I okay. You're Asian, so you can say this without like offending anyone. Maybe why? And because I've lived in LA for thirty why are we years. Bad drivers? No, I don't even. Oh. I don't necessarily <laughs> even believe in that one. That's one of the ones. Here's the theory I have. This is separate than the Asian car driving theory. Yeah, but because I used to have a lot of problems with anger. Yeah. Back in the day, I'm pretty chill now. I now I just get annoyed at stupid shit like when my tech won't work or something, but I don't get angry at people or have road rage or anything like that anymore, yeah. typically. But as far as driving, that's where my anger used to manifest. I've been in LA for 30 years. And I used to notice that I would get pissed in like lower income areas because people drive too slow. And so I'd be like, fucking go. <laughs> But then if I got in more affluent areas, I would get pissed because everyone was trying to race past me and everyone was in such a hurry. It wasn't so much a racial thing, just kind of a demographic in terms of, you know, um, income I've status. I've never noticed that before. Yeah, get into a poor neighborhood and people drive. Maybe they have clunkers. Really? Or maybe they've moved from another country where they didn't have a car and now they have one and they don't know how to well, drive Well, you yet. know that I, I don't live in Cali anymore. I've I lived out of here for eight years. So like I only drive when I'm in town. And it is, it's bizarre because people also slam on their brakes in on the freeway instead of leaving enough space between. Right. And that is dangerous. That happened to me twice on the way up here. This brings me to my non-PC question. What is your theory on why the vast majority of Asian people drive white, white cars? Because if you go down the street to Koreatown yeah. and pull up in like one of the Asian or the Korean markets, like 90% of the cars in the Are parking lot will be really? white. Okay, so my mom before this car, her car was, I think she had a Volvo and it was beige. 
and <laughs> or a Camry and it was gold. And so this is like one of her first white cars. And maybe so I've never blown. noticed I've never noticed that before. And I'm only half Asian, so I can't, you know, say I the last three cars I had were black. <laughs> My business partner Lauren and I were discussing it the other day because we talk about random cultural things. And she was like, duh, it's because white cars don't show dirt. It might be. I was thinking and that your too. Car that looks they're a clean. Because her she's gonna buy, that's why we we're talking about. It. Yeah, she's cause she's about to buy um uh, one of those small Range Rovers. And she's like, I want it all white with blacked out windows and black rims. Like she wants a little gangster one. And I was like, oh, like an Asian car. And uh, she said, well, yeah, because I wanted to stay clean. And that's why they do it too, was her theory. So, it could be anyway, true. Who knows? Sorry if I just offended a bunch of Asian people that drive black cars. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so what is Kintsugi? <gasps> Cookie. Kintsugi. So <laughs> this King- is our first podcast with Cookie. You might hear growling or pitter-patter. <laughs> I took her bone away, sadly, so she won't be dropping that on the floor. So Kintsugi is the art of golden repair. In Japanese culture, if an object is of value and it breaks, there's an art form where you can put it back together with a lacquer and golden powder. So it's dusted with gold. And then the object is foreseen as more beautiful than it was once before. It's foreseen as an art form. And what we do is we recognize that the cracks are what make the object actually more beautiful. This is from thousands of years ago. The masters used to have, uh, if a servant broke an object of a master's, sometimes the servant would go out and fix it as an honorable mention of, I'm so sorry I broke this, but I honor you. In certain instances, not anymore, but back then, the servant may commit suicide over doing that, but yet still present the object back to their master. So the Japanese are a really honorable culture. They still are. Um, Most recently, we saw in the World Cup that the team, after giving their absolute all, which they always do, in Japanese, we call that the anthem of ganbate, always do your best. They lost to to Holland, I believe it was, or Denmark. And then they bowed at the end of their 3-2 loss, which I can't imagine how tired and strained and gut-wrenched they were. And then they continued to clean their locker room and left a thank you note. So it was like spotless (laughs) and a thank you note. And then the Japanese fans cleaned the stands with their own trash bags. Oh, that is so great. They were seen there late cleaning afterwards. And I actually, uh, I cried about thinking about their whole experience because there are few cultures left out there that are celebrating honor and dignity and respect for others, regardless yeah. of our differences. And I think that's another reason why my heart really tugged at walking away from popularity or clickbait or mainstream or profit and saying like, what's way more important is actually where you come from and who you are. And telling stories of honor. It's interesting that you make that distinction of honor in the Japanese culture because it's a culture that I don't know a lot about, but I have always observed from that point of being honorable and having manners. And the one thing that I think is most fascinating about the Japanese is kamikaze pilots in World War II. 
that they had so much reverence for their country. They're literally willing to die to win. It wasn't even just them. It was, did you know that they gave grenades to everybody during the war? They, they said the Americans are going to kill you. Whether that was true or not, we don't know. I don't know that that was true. And it's, it's tough being Japanese American now and studying these things every time I go back. But I learned so much. A lot of people were handed grenades because they wanted to honorably kill themselves versus the enemy killing them. <laughs> so you'd pull the pin and put it to your head. And they gave them out to everyone. They gave it to the soldiers when they knew that they were going to get cornered by the Americans. And they would go down into the caves. You, I mean, you should watch Letters wow. from Iwo Jima if you, if you want to see a lot oh, of cool. honor and grit. People nowadays think that gritty shit is like throwing down in New York City or something. I'm like, no. Like the stuff we, like the kamikaze pilots definitely got in that plane knowing they were going to die for their country. Um, it's like a, my mom would be like, this, that's what you really call a suicide mission. So <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's we're, where it came from. So you we, know? Can't, we can never use that term in vain. Like I'm going into a really tough corporate boardroom meeting and they're all going to be against me. It's a suicide mission. <laughs> well, not really. That's, not really. I know. And, and being a child of war too, the stuff is, it's hard to learn about. Uh, I studied at several different sites where battles were fought between the Americans or just in general, the Europeans, the Japanese, lots of Koreans and Chinese were also involved. Um, and I studied in Okinawa and Hiroshima Next time I go back, I am planning on going to Nagasaki because I feel like it's another country. They both are honorable forms of kintsugi or wabi-sabi in a way where they are now more, they're seen as more beautiful than ever before because you look at the recovery of the people and what they overcome. There are several examples that the Japanese show and don't tell in which we can speak of honor and watch it being done actionably because the American way is also very much like, let me talk and boast and brag and and tell you about how great I am. My mom said when she moved to this country, she's about 27. She said she could not believe the freedom of speech. That was shocking to her. In terms of the kintsugi, kintsugi, I'm like... It's your new favorite word, kintsugi. Kintsugi. Uh, (laughs) In terms of that, I love the, the, you know, the sort of obvious metaphor for one's life. Um, Having been someone who completely wrecked my life in my early years and have put it back together and really akin to the $6 million man and better than ever before, stronger than ever before at, you know, creeping up on 50. So I totally relate to that that sometimes destruction is necessary. You just think about a forest burning down and the lush greenery that comes back after you put all that carbon back into the soil. You know, it's just sort of the way of um, how nature actually works when it's left to its own devices. There's destruction and then there's rebirth. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. the rebirth is more magnificent than the structure that was there previously. So it's such a cool concept. So another thing that I like, the same sort of correlation is your podcast, Wabi Sabi. Tell us about that thing. As I understand, it's things being perfectly imperfect. Same kind of theme in a sense. Well, I'd love to preface first that Luke was one of the nicest podcasters from the beginning. And what is so brilliant about podcasting is a lot of us have stories to share and we have um, vulnerability to give and show others so that 
so many of you can learn from our mistakes or from our stories or our past or our struggles. And you were already doing that for so long. And Luke was always so kind to me, along with a handful of other podcasters. And not everybody was like that. So I commend you for being a good, honest, and honorable person because whether it's somebody just being busy or ignoring their DMs or whatever it may be, um, a lot of us have long histories of media backgrounds and which, you know, that means we've got stories to tell now. And a lot of us chose not to talk about them. Like you or I didn't really probably feel the need to share our, you know, past history and fashion or media or the experiences that were bad. Because as a, a Japanese American also, I was taught to never share the bad. Right. Don't right. tell people you're struggling. Right. There's a bit of stoicism within yes. that culture. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. yeah I mean, a, a little. <laughs> I will tell you some stories. Yeah. It's shocking actually. But the reason why I started Wabi Sabi, it wasn't actually a choice. It was because um, as a daughter of immigrants, it was always taught to show and never tell. And you better believe, Luke, like my parents do not care about money or fame or fortune or profit. They enjoy watching CSI Miami on weekends. They enjoy driving to go see nature. They're in Alaska, like chilling in the forest. Like they, but they don't get to do that often. So they cherish each other. They cherish their time together and they are best friends. And they did meet through war when my father was serving. He was drafted into Vietnam and then he was stationed in Yokosuka, which is right outside of Tokyo. And my mother and father met at a Buddhist temple and it was a giant Buddha. It was at Kamakura. And it's a huge landmark that most people go to to visit when they go to Japan near the Tokyo area. And so ideally I go back there and I sort of, every time I go back to Japan, it's for research family to be with my mother and my great aunt Takuko. It was to say goodbye to Bachan while I wrote this book, She Passed Away. And it was also to pay an homage to their uh, traditions and heritage that are being very quickly wiped out and lost as the Japanese population is declining severely. And it's why my, are they not reproducing? They're not having kids. Yeah. I believe it's a foreshadowing of the future of the world because yeah. the Japanese are so stellar at being ahead of the game. Technologically speaking, they're so advanced. Uh, robots are being produced now and, and people aren't. Yeah, the AI future. It's bizarre. It's, it's totally terrifying. Well, there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but if one does research, there's a lot of indications and uh, and facts actually based on um, certain entities and powers in the world government structure actually don't want people to reproduce, you know? And so there's a lot of anti-family propaganda, especially in Western culture. What? Yeah. It's another conversation, but... <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I'm like so terrified. Yeah. Well, I'm back on Saturday. So, um, <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> this book is my sixth. So I'm, I am a writer by trade and a journalist and a chef also by trade. But I fell in love with writing for the people. And that didn't happen overnight. Much like Luke, I was a bad kid for a super long time. I was very selfish. I thought everybody owed it to me. I was a model. I was a TV host. I was signed with WME, IMG, like very early on in my career before that CA and UTA. And I just thought, I always stayed humble, but I also was very eager, right? And in your 20s, you think everything's going to happen for you right away. And when this book came out, I thought all the shows would be a shoe in 
And they weren't picking this up because as you can see, it's like gold. It's got my name in Japanese with kanji on the bottom and katakana, which are two different forms of Japanese writing. It's, it's not your everyday cookbook. The bottom line is, is my mom and I worked on this project together for three years. We didn't write it for the Japanese. And that's what the show producers, I think, were, were sort of capturing was, well, this book is very different. And when you do something different, you're taking a huge risk. And I was also really scared that um, I wasn't good enough for the Japanese people because I was never Japanese enough. And I was also scared that the Americans wouldn't like it because I wasn't American enough. And that was me being caught in a wabi-sabi, perfectly imperfect gray area of mixed kids and kids that are sort of asked to check off a box on a census at five years old, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, whatever, pick one, pick (laughs) one. I'm like, oh, but my mom is from Japan. Like I'm like this little five-year-old girl in my dentist chair. And I remember he asked me, what are you, Candice? And I won't forget my answer to him because he burst out into laughter. I said, my mom is Japanese. My dad is Caucasian. And he thought that was so funny. He gave me extra tools out of the treasure chest that day. And I was like, mom, like I didn't understand why did, Why was that so funny to him? And it was obviously because I used the word Caucasian, which I probably... Because you saw it on your little forms, right? <laughs> I was just a confused little kid with with big hazel eyes, but yet I looked Japanese, but Hawaiian, but you know, like in growing up in San Diego, it's almost all white and Hispanic at this time. Um, My sister and I had one, maybe, or two other kids out of our entire district that were also Asian. So, and Asian Americans don't really speak up. We're taught to be very quiet and humble, be studious, be good. And I was everything that, that I was everything that wasn't, you know, Asian growing up. So back to Kintsugi Wellness and the start of Wabi Sabi's podcast, it was because nobody would put the book on the shows. And then slowly the honor of my work and and recipes and the stories, I think it was truly from the hearts of those who've read it to the producers. They said, you know, this this book is actually a piece of artwork and that's not me saying that, but I've heard that several times from people. They're like, this is a perennial book and it's now being translated into nine languages across the wow, world. Wow, congratulations. Thanks. That's so cool. It's so crazy, Luke. That's never, it's never happened with a basic clean eating book. And that's because wow. I didn't take a risk. I didn't do something different. I was just playing safe. And as Dr. Sue says, you know, why fit in when you were born to stand out? Yeah, I relate to that. It's funny. I mean, I'm, uh, I guess I'm Caucasian. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I was thinking about, it's funny. I was thinking about, you're my dad, the Caucasian male. <laughs> it's so funny because I don't think of myself as a white dude. I, I just never, I've never think about, um, I never think about race in terms of myself or other people so much. I mean, in the context of this conversation with you, of course, we're talking about your race because it's part of your, content and your brand and what you're celebrating, right? But yes, I don't really think yes. about that myself, but I was thinking about, oh, she's so she's biracial. And I thought, well, God, I think I'm biracial too, because I'm a freaking mutt. But I think that all of my muttness comes from some derivative of Caucasian people, whether it's like the 
you know, the Italian, the English, the Russian. That's so Polish. cool, though. That's so yeah, cool. It's, a, it's an amalgam, but I thought, well, no, I guess I no, actually am is, a white guy. That you is know? mixed. You're not a white guy. Yeah. I mean, my dad is straight up like came from a boat from Poland when he was 11, but I don't really refer to him as a white guy because I mean, when I was five, I might have said Caucasian, but. I just also got back from the Amalfi Coast and I refer to my dad as Polish American because he's very proud to be both. Yeah. You know, he served for this country. My uncle John did as well his entire career. He was in the US uh, National Guard and Air Force. But I, I also think that he's very proud to be Polish, which is why my sister has dual citizenship and he does as well. And my mother did too. It was like, uh, Japan is so strict about their rules, though, that you really do have to stay Japanese. They're very, very proud beyond any other country I've ever seen in my entire life. And I have traveled the world. They are so strict. And maybe that homogeneous way of of living is another thing that worked against them for not procreating. Because if you're not letting foreigners in constantly to stay, then the odds are now that we're finding that the population is, it's very vastly older mm-hmm. and they're just tapering off. Only one of my three cousins in Japan had kids. So Interesting observation uh, in, in looking at Japan that I've noticed, and this is more from a political standpoint, but nobody hassles Japan for having borders and not letting in a bunch of immigrants. Like everyone's cool with them being that way. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I, I just find it funny how different political positions will will look at something somewhere until they ignore the fact that that exists but in another place. I don't place. think anyone's pulling up in a boat to Japan. Trying to get into Japan. Because they know you will not be let in. Right. So they kind of set a golden standard. I once wrote a podcast and then recorded it on... I was like blown away by why my sister and I are both entrepreneurs. We're both writers. We both have podcasts. We both have books. We both write for magazines. We don't take anything shitty... And run with it. If it if it's low quality, it's a no. So it's my mom and dad. That's what I traced it back to. It's Tiger Mom more so. They have a golden standard. And if you do not live up to it, you will be doing them a dishonorable disservice. And you just... That's something that's instilled in Japanese children. And so I think that's a big difference between the American way and the Japanese way as well. Because... There are folk tales that I write about in the new book too that kids learn from. But fully, to answer your question, full circle, it's a book for everyone. As you can see, Saudi Arabia, like Brazil, Portugal, the Netherlands, Poland, the Czech Republic, China, Russia, they all picked up the book. It's it's something that they're seeing in it where they're like, oh my gosh, this is so unique. And what a great time to learn about another lens, like looking at life through another lens because uh, we are really united in our differences and the World Cup shows that, the Olympics that are coming up in Tokyo will show that in 2020 and all of us being mixed kids show that. The bottom line is, is that love will always bring us back together and hatred will only tear us apart. So it is better to open up and say, I had no idea how... My Polish-American Christian used-to-be Catholic father fell in love with a Buddhist Japanese teacher who was living in the middle of Tokyo. But love is what brought them together. They would probably tell you, my mom says, oh yeah, me and your father, we both went to see the world. And he was okay. 
And he wasn't okay. He was a very handsome mom. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you gra- you've gravitated toward Japanese culture and not Polish Great culture? Great question. A lot of people ask My, that. And I'm just totally guessing here because I know nothing about yeah, Poland. Yeah, take a guess. But, you know, and I don't know that much about art, uh, you know, fine art, history, uh, classical music, things like that. But I don't see, from my perspective, born in 1970 and, you know, living in California my whole life, I don't see a lot of culture coming out of Poland or any of the Eastern Bloc countries so much. It has to exist though, right? Of course. When I think if you're like, what's Polish culture? I'd be like, um, I don't know. They probably eat sausages and potatoes (laughs) and it's cold and... You know, there's no color anywhere. I just I have this drab picture of, you know, like World War II Poland or something mm. in my mind from movies. I don't know about the culture. Is there an interesting aspect of the culture there? And if so, how much have you delved into it? And is it something you'd like to explore more or report on more? Yeah. And I mean, this goes for everybody listening that feels that there's a part of them that they haven't tapped into yet. And that doesn't mean that you have to go out and seek Ayurveda or yoga or travel to India or go over to Mars. It sometimes means just going deep inside. I thought that the Wabi Sabi podcast would sell this book And I thought of all the topics that nobody was talking about or the ones only I could talk about. And they kept leading me back to mom. When I was 15, there was a career day at school and there was a a box you could check off what you wanted to do. And of course, one that I checked off was modeling because I'm 5'8 and I'm half Asian and I was very lanky at the time. And I I was like, this is going to be great. And then the lady that came in to speak to all of us that day, Pam, my first modeling agent at 15, um, asked me to stay after class and called my mother into a meeting and we had to go through like business paperwork. And she's like, by the way, your name, like what's your mom's last name? And it happens to be Kumai, which is actually, um, it it's translated close to what a bear in Japanese is Kuma. So we're the Bear family in Japan. It's my grandmother's last name, not my grandfather's, even though Jun Kumai was my grandfather, who is an impressionist painter across Japan. He also took her last name. It's a very Japanese thing to do. Ooh, do you have any of his paintings? I sure do. Oh, that's awesome. There's a picture of a self-portrait in there. Oh, cool. And he made himself look more handsome. Oh, I saw that, actually. That's him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, He made himself look more handsome than he was. So my mom told me that. That's cool. (laughs) I'll show you all of them. They're amazing. Some of them are stowed away in Japan, but... What happened was she asked me to be more Japanese with my name because I looked more Japanese than I looked Polish. Oh, right. And so I immediately identified with with all the modeling gigs I was getting booked on was like Asian, Hawaiian, surfer girl, Japanese runway show, Japanese hair, Japanese beauty. And it was easier for me to get cast that way. And at the same token... My mother raised my sister and I. We went to Japanese school every Friday. She's a Japanese language and cultural teacher in San Diego now. So you're fluent in uh, in Japanese? Skoshi. No, very little. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Makara nai. Like it's, my Japanese is good to get around Japan and it's basic, but it's not that great. And so I've been taking classes and working on that. My goal is to get better so that I can work with the 2020 Olympics. Awesome. So Wabi Sabi... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> your, your Japanese is in itself wabi sabi. Absolutely. So, uh, okay, so that that makes sense why you gravitated toward that more. I mean, it's advantageous to you, and it was just more of a fit. Obviously, people aren't coming up to you like, "Oh my God, are you Polish? Let's talk about that." <laughs> it's, it, you yeah. know, and it, it, it is just ethnically a more nondescript sort of 
Like well, you could have a Polish name, right? With I a, did, yeah. With my a, father's with last a ski name. ski on the end, yes. you know, or something, right? His last name is Gwizdowski. There yeah. you go. And we're very proud to be yeah. Polish-American too. But, you know, my sister takes his last name on all of her books and I take my mother's. And so I feel like we are one. And the four That's of cool. us have the best time together during the holiday. We don't need anyone else around. It's my favorite four days out of the year. Um, and the second part of your question was the Polish part has been incredible to learn about. Um, I have recently signed with Belvedere Vodka and they are from the terroir over in Poland, established in Poland. And they are only the only vodka brand out there that uses only all natural ingredients, no sugar added. It's super clean distiller. Their distilleries are very clean and there's no uh, chemicals or sugars added nothing artificial and it's the best vodka i've ever I've, I've ever had and experienced the whole thing from the soil to the way that it was produced and so it made me feel very proud and we have studied going back to the different regions in poland with the farmers and telling their story about why this is a heritage play for them and not something that was made up and some of the other brands that are out there do use chemicals do use sugar do use bad processing methods. And oh, they, dude. People they, have no idea how toxic booze are. So much, so many alcoholic drinks. That? There's GMOs in so many uh, yeah. alcoholic beverages. It's crazy. I mean, I don't drink, so it's a non-issue. I just avoid that stuff in other areas. But potatoes, just on the topic of vodka, yeah. potatoes are the single most toxin-laden, pesticide-laden food in our food supply unless they're grown organically. Wow. So if you get French fries or vodka, you're getting like such a gnarly concentration. And think about how dense potatoes are, right? Versus something like celery that's very watery. Wow. Potatoes just like a calcified, dense toxin ball, you know? Well, it's full ball, of starch, you know? yeah. yeah. I can imagine so. it's soaking up a lot. The processing with Belvedere is, is really water and wheat, and uh, it's very clean. It's very unique. And the flavors, so you know how flavored vodka became this huge thing? Yeah. They didn't even want to do it, but they were doing it because everybody else is. And they said, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it well. And we're going to do it naturally only with all the real ingredients. So we came out with this ginger zest flavor recently. And it, it's been remarkable being a chef to be able to learn about the processing that a brand that's from Poland that they really have integrity and value and grace in their work. And, you know, they don't talk about it. It's just like the Japanese, like part of being honorable and humble means you just let your work speak for itself. And I pray and hope that all the right brands can and will be able to do that. But it's people like you and I who are the front line. I mean, we're right in front of the camera with Cookie. He's taking a nap here. Uh, we have to also honor what they're doing and respect them. And that's why I think being a public figure that is taking this job a little bit more serious than some other people, and I believe you do too, this is important because you and I are essentially giving people direct information that they take and use. And I think there's a responsibility that we have to sell the right products to the public. Oh, absolutely. I I tell my audience uh, that listens to the show, um, if if they ever catch me running a Diet Coke ad <laughs> to come find me and beat my ass, you know, I, I actually, when I run ads on my show, just on that note, and I've talked about this before, I get on the phone with the CEO or someone at the company and I grill them as if I was a customer, like, because I'm very discerning about supplements and health products and things like that. I've been into it forever. 
and I'll ask them about every process. So you're talking wow. about, you know, from, from soil to, you know, the end product, whatever it is. Yeah. And I get on and I grill them and, um, you know, so far I don't think I've turned any down. No, I don't think I've turned anyone down because everyone that listens to my show or comes to my show to want to advertise, they already know that I have a certain sort of standard. So I'm not getting approached by, cool, by Snickers or Nestle or Coca, you know, any of these big companies. <laughs> Although the money would probably be great. I literally just, and I'm not trying to be like, you know, profess my uh, integrity in a prideful way, but you got to be able to sleep at night. That's the thing, you know? Yeah. So, and I also just, I really, I have this sort of rebellious um, disdain for companies that make things that hurt people. And I don't want to fucking support companies that manufacture things that hurt people, period. Because I don't, I won't buy that shit. And if I do, well, at least I know what I'm getting into. But I don't want to be misled into buying something that mm. is toxic, you know. So, so I'm all down with your your Polish vodka. Mm. When they come out with an alcohol free version, let me know, and I'll be I happy will. to try. <laughs> I will do, and I don't blame you guys. It's all for celebratory reasons no, only. Listen, I say. though, listen yeah. from from a like a biohacker's point of view. If in my belief, even though I don't personally drink for you know, um. I just have an extreme allergy to it. Um, I break out in handcuffs. But uh, from a biohacker's <laughs> perspective, if you're going to drink, a good, clean, organic vodka is the safest and cleanest alcohol based on my research. Mm, so something to keep cool. in mind. Yeah, because so many of the other ones have um, so much sugar. And like I said, the, the propensity yeah, they do. Uh, to have scary. And toxins. And you know, Keith Richards actually is the one that, made me aware of this in the beginning. They asked him, you know, how have you drank this long and managed to stay alive? And he said, I don't drink brown booze. <laughs> they only drink oh the clear God. stuff. It's so yeah. true. It's so true. And I believe that all the way too. And I actually think in moderation is is also the key. Like I'm one of those What's people. Moder- oh, stop ma- it. Mod what? Get out of here. Listen, I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk about some more of these principles of the Japanese art of living. Okay. So let's go ahead and cover Japanese food first. I mean, Japanese people seem to live in eternity. I think they're one of the longest lived people. So there's been a lot of studies in terms of what are they eating from a bystander's point of view and someone who's not too into food from a culinary incentive, but more so from a health incentive. I see a lot of fermented foods and I see a lot of animals from the sea just in a zoomed out perspective. Uh, one of my favorite Japanese foods, and I'm probably in the minority here of Americans that dig it, but I love natto. Oh, you do? Yeah, natto's, oh my God. Natto's one of my favorite foods because it's so good for you. And once you get vitamins. acclimated, yeah, yeah. And, and it's really high in K2. In fact, it is, it is. it's the highest food on the planet in K2. How did you find out about natto? I... I, I have a funny little thing I didn't show you in the kitchen. I have a cabinet of like my Japanese foods and I make seaweed soups. Oh, yeah. I make these really high density, high nutrient seaweed suits that are just uh, soups, not suits. Although I like Japanese fashion as well. <laughs> Yoji Yamamoto specifically. Yeah. Uh, so I make the seaweed soup and um, I don't know that it tastes good to anyone else, but it tastes good to me. And then when I was researching um, ingredients for the soup, then I found natto because I'm always interested in getting more probiotic wow. foods. And natto is like a next level strain of bacteria. But other than that, I don't really know a lot about the, the you know the, the food itself. I don't really like sushi because I just don't like the, the taste and texture of raw fish. 
But in your book, the reason I want to cover food, and obviously it's, you know, the majority of the book is about recipes and beautiful photos of food. But when I opened your damn book, I got, I became starving. <laughs> like the photography is so beautiful Thanks. and the food, the recipes just look so good. I'm not trying to make a commercial for your book, I swear, but it, it is a beautifully designed book and the photography is amazing. But I'm like, I would eat this stuff every day if it was around. And I don't feel like I'm eating enough Japanese well, food. Well, now you know you need to go to Japan. Yeah. And if I, if I look at the health profile of the Japanese people in general, then there's something to be learned on that mm. diet. So give me some of the staples, you know, from a, from a taste standpoint and palate right. standpoint, but also just, you know, nutritional value and, and why you think Japanese people kick ass so much. Okay, so uh, Okinawa is a island off the southern coast of mainland Japan where I went to study food. And they have the longest lives out of all the Asian cultures in that region. Plus, it's considered a blue zone, which means they have more centenarians there than anywhere else in the world. But next to the same, about the same amount roughly as an area in Costa Rica, Sardinia, Greece, and then Loma Linda, California is also a blue zone. So Loma Linda, where the hell is that? Why don't I live there? <laughs> well, because it's a it's a very like religious community and I'm not oh, sure. Oh, interesting. What religion? <laughs> I believe they're very Christian and and that is what we find in uh blue zones is that culture along with community helps to keep people alive. Oh, so, I find that so fascinating because as I am such a, a proponent and um you know, really uh, like a promoter of supplements and all this biohacking yeah. technology and stuff. When people are like, I don't know, should I buy this thing or that thing? I'm so confused. I always tell people, get some good friends, learn how to pray and meditate and forget about it. <laughs> you know, like it's that so more, true. to me more powerful than any supplement in the world and good sleep, you know? So. Oh my God. So the Loma Linda people- I so feel you on the sleep thing and I wish- more people understood its importance. Well, you know what? I think for me, it's because I've gotten older. When I was, dude, in my 20s and even in my 30s, I mean, sometimes I wouldn't sleep for two days because I had artificial stimuli that allowed that to be possible. And actually, it was, it was not possible to sleep, even if one would have uh, desired to do so. But uh, as I've gotten older, every year I get older, I'm just smoked if I don't get not only enough hours, but like good quality sleep. So I'm obsessed mm. with sleep. But anyway, back to Loma Linda. Right, Loma and the, Linda. And the blue zones. So, so these blue zones are regions where people live the longest, right. healthiest, happiest lives and natural... God, I always get natural and national mixed up when I'm speaking my vernacular because I speak about these two words so often. National Geographic has done studies on them along with my friend Dan Wetner, who has an incredible book, The Blue Zones. And uh, yeah, it was yeah, like I've a game-changing book for me. I read it on an airplane once many years ago when I was fucking fascinated because I just said, I think this is has something to do with another like like another piece of my puzzle, but I had no idea when I read it almost a decade ago that it would have a a large part of my calling, which is now studying the regions. I just got back from Sardinia about two weeks ago and being in Okinawa, seeing the sites of war where they hid in the caves and learning about how they kept each other alive with emo, the sweet potato, and how they still farm their own food and cook for themselves every single day. So some of the keys in Japanese culture and the blue zone cultures that keep them alive are, as you said, lots of fermented foods. We know that 
like miso, soy sauce. You can also try something like a yogurt if you like that and prefer that. Or um, a lot of people don't know that apple cider vinegar actually has fermented benefits when it has the inclusion of the mother. So yeah. it must be... That's great. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. That's kind of an old school health product that a lot yeah. of people don't I don't feel like talk about or know about anymore. Back in the 90s, that apple cider vinegar was like the thing. Everyone was super really? into it. Yeah. Well, we're bringing it back, Luke's story. I love it. <laughs> yeah, but it's it when it has the mother you, me, when and it, cookie. When it does have that fermentation, yeah. it looks gross though. It's sort of like if I, you've ever made your own kombucha. Yeah. Kombucha is so gross if you make it yourself because it has the big disc of fungus or whatever, you know? that is what makes it so incredibly special. It's alive. Right. It is live active cultures or it's that good for you bacteria that helps to clear your gut out. And it is tied to almost every area of health. A lot of what I like to promote is, sure, I like to eat well. I like to get good sleep. I work out every single day if I can. If I don't, it usually drives me crazy. It's not because only because of the way that I look and I want to maintain that X model like look. It's because I like being happy. And when I'm balanced and I'm eating well, and that includes fermented foods and lots of fruits and vegetables, I actually feel my best. On my way up here for my drive, I used to drink like 7-Eleven coffee and, you know, I'm trying to think of like scoops of peanut butter out of the jar when I was like a fit model, believe it or not, in my 20s. Now I ate strawberries and an avocado and a LaCroix on my way up here. So things have really done a nice shift. But at home, when I get back, I'll make a big ass salad. I'll add miso paste to the dressing, a little bit of apple cider vinegar. I'll whisk it with gomabura, which is toasted sesame seed oil, which is so good, so nutty. And then um, I'll add some lemon or even a touch of olive oil as well and just whisk that up, throw really dark leafy greens. Red leaf lettuce is really my favorite right now. And then I'll add avocado, some kind of a lentil, maybe quinoa, some red onion and a little bit of tomato and cucumber and toss that up. And then now I'm on this turmeric kick, hence my nails. And I just add a lot of curry powder to everything because I really believe that everything's cumulative. You look really great. So I feel like you can share what you've gone through and how you've done your turnaround. For me, the watching the monks also, I stayed with the monks in Koyasan and Shikoku Island in Japan. Koyasan is closer to Osaka. You have to take a train, cars, cable cars, and more cars to get there, but it's worth it. I stayed um, in Shikoku Island, which is in the southeastern part of Japan, and it's 88 temple pilgrimage is something that many people do to maintain meaning and health, spirituality in life. So much like the Camino de los Santos, there's a trail in, uh, forgive me for not knowing the name because I'm not studying Spain right now, but there's a trail that's very popular in Spain where people go to all the, it must be the missions. And in Japan, people are doing the same thing with the temples. So I stayed where the founder of Shingon Buddhism was born when I was there. And when I learned from all the meals, when it comes to what the monks used to eat or still eat is a term called shojin ryori. So when I started studying this many years ago, when I started to write this book, I was fascinated with how they ate nothing from animals. They ate nothing that was a byproduct of an animal. They ate nothing potent. So no garlic and no onion. They ate only from what nature would provide in season 
and they cooked minimally and beautifully. You'd almost always get miso shiru and tsukemono pickles for breakfast and sometimes maybe like a side of some roasted vegetables or persimmon that had been poached in something, melon. You'd get somen cold noodles for lunch that were flavored with, you know, different umami-like sauces. And sauces in Japanese culture are not heavy and cream-based or dairy-based at all. I'm talking about like something that's made with a dashi, which is can be made of kombu, a little bit of bonito flakes. So sometimes katsobushi is thrown in there, which is fish-based, but it's all mindfully used. So when I started to write about shojin ryori, I wanted everyone to know, and I used to be a writer with men's health, women's health, shape, men's fitness. And now I'm on the council at Well and Good and I write for everyone, including Girl Boss and Cosmo. We talk about this all the time in my work is I want people to know that veganism is not something that is recent. It's not from a hippie up north in San Francisco. It's not granola eating. It was truly created by the monks thousands of years ago with mindfulness and no waste and being nourished in mind. They don't overuse, they don't overconsume. I think you'll really like the Shojin Ryori section in here. And I think you'll like going to the temples too, because they welcome you now. The public can come and stay. They don't speak much English. They don't live with much. And in the morning, when we go to the temple to pray at six in the morning, and I was there for this winter, you could see my breath as I left the hallways. You could see my breath the entire hour of chanting. And I remembered putting my beanie on and some older Japanese people asked me to take it off. And I I specifically had told them, like, I actually can't because this is the only thing that's keeping me warm enough. So what we learned from them is tolerance, mindfulness, being respectful, and they devotionally live with very little because they don't believe in vanity or they don't care about money. They simply realize that dark places do exist and they send light to those dark places through prayer and devotion, and they shave their heads to turn from vanity, and they live their lives for others very quietly. It's not on Instagram. It's not on Facebook. It's not important to share their thoughts on Twitter. They're out there every single day doing the groundwork for all of us, and they're sending you and I prayers right now, and we don't even know it, but they're, I mean, you and I both ask for prayers every day, and we pray for other people, And I do that often now, but I never did that when I was younger. And now it's like a normal thing to be like, I'm going to pray for them. But they do it every day, all day without even thinking. So what I learned mostly was from my bachan, my mother, my great aunt Takuko, and the monks. Those were the people that taught me how to cook. And then I learned under Elizabeth Ando Sensei, the base model for Japanese cooking is sweet with a touch of sugar, salt from things like miso, sometimes from uh, shoyu, soy sauce. Then we we sometimes add umami flavors in there from MSG. I hate to say that, but it's true. <laughs> they love their MSG. Oh, God, they call is, it ajinomoto. That is the worst. I know, they love it. They, oh my they fun, God. But you can get it naturally occurring through things like mushrooms or kombu. And um, they lo- they also love their acid from things like rice vinegar. I also just have the inclusion of apple cider vinegar because I think it's so good. And actually, the company that I'm working with now, Mizkan, is from Japan. They have over 80 years of vinegar-making experience. And they finally launched their first apple cider vinegar, Nature's Intent. So I've been working with them on the processing of how to get more knowledge of apple cider vinegar to the American audience. It is the thing. 
But what we can learn from the Japanese is that balance of sweet, salt, umami, and a little bit of um, fat. So that could include something like the gomabura. They have an incredible array of flavor, but they almost always add a tiny pinch of sugar at the end of cooking a lot of meals or sautés or even just sauces. Their flavors are more potent without adding heavy creams or any meats. Meat wasn't introduced to Japan until the end of the Edo era when foreigners and westernization came to play. What about, what about part. seafood, though? That's their thing, though. That has always been part of their culture. See, because you mentioned something earlier about, oh, the, and I forget which part mm-hmm. of Japan it was, um, that they've been vegans forever. And, and I interviewed someone the other day who's a farmer and a promoter of uh, you know, paleo ancestral diets and whatnot. And she, she indicated, and it's been indicated by a number of different people that are experts on world diets and world history, that there has, in fact, never been a vegan culture there on the planet. There isn't. The monks ate predominantly vegan for thousands of years. That is true. But the the Okinawans, let me be clear on them, they eat pork for celebratory reasons. That's their thing. And of course they fish. But it is true that the monks eat vegan only. Like it's called harmonious uh, devotional so like, cuisine. So a sect of that culture, not the culture itself. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, I wouldn't say either that there is. That's what sort of. I was a vegetarian for ten years, and I'm just I'm fascinated by the thing. I don't get caught up in the debates. I always say like, eat a box of rocks if you want. I really don't care what other people do. I just do whatever works for me. But I am interested in the phenomenon of veganism because, to my knowledge, it is. It's never been successfully practiced practiced by a culture of people anywhere in world history. And so doing it now is really an experiment. Now, it could be a successful experiment, but we really don't know that until three generations or maybe four generations. So two people have been vegan their whole life. They mate, they create offspring. Those offspring are then vegan. They both, you know, and so on and so on. Well, I don't think the monks are out we, there having we, kids either. Yeah, that's so, the thing. We really, yeah. we really don't know. So, I, you know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it is absolutely scientifically an experiment that we're trying to see what happens. Well, I think you know? it's certainly proven that you live longer. The China study proved that if we ate like less meat and dairy or none, that we would be healthier all around you know but if if this is the thing though if you look up um the counter argument to the china study there's a lot of bunk pseudoscience in the china study because i read that too and i was like oh shit yeah. i'm gonna be a vegetarian no there's a lot of misinformation in that particular book well it's, it's not it's right hard or wrong to, it's re- anything and we learned this when i was at men's health yeah. we could truly find a study for anything if i wanted to tell you right that my boobs would get bigger if I drank, you know, wine every day, we could probably make that one up. That might be true. <laughs> it's a lot of lot of sugar and, and alcohol. <laughs> sugar, no you know, I'm taking it through. Insulin, fat retention, Sit, water retention. Be quiet, yeah. Luke. I was just kidding. Oh, ladies, I, let's hey, get listen. Back to what's Safer serious. alternative than some of the but other what's alternatives. What's serious and real is, is like the, the monks in general from many different cultures not all, but I would say probably most do eat a vegetarian-based diet. Shodin Ryori is just one. Devo- the devotional cuisine is harmonious where right. it's only, there's no harm done in the cooking. 
right. ever. Like that is, it's called, it translates to harmonious cuisine, devotional cuisine. It's devotion that's given to you and you take it as nourishment. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all doing that still. It doesn't mean that some of them use traces of things like, I was talking about the bonito flakes. It's called katsobushi in Japanese. Many people sneak katsobushi in because it's a highly prized, thinly shaved, smoked bonito that tastes amazing. And what is that? Well, Some it's derivative. Fish. Oh, okay. Okay. And I see. it's it's the hardest food in the world. And when you shave it thinly, it moves around. It's very cool and it's very Japanese. But a lot of people take water and they add kombu to it. Then they add the bonito flakes in it. Oh. And you strain it, and that's how you make a really good dashi. And so sometimes that traces of that will come through Japanese cuisine, including right. probably. Shojin Yodi. So I'm not, I'm not one of those people. I want to make this very, very clear to the audience. I am not somebody who presses my way of eating or how I grew up or what I'm doing with my life with anyone. You guys, I strictly write my books because they are from my heart to yours. And the, this latest book was about the pain of a breakup that I went through while my grandmother was dying and watching my mother lose her only mother in Japan. And I had a trip planned like weeks before my dumb ex left me without any notice and gave me 30 <laughs> minutes. I had a trip planned to Japan. He left me very abruptly the day before my book, Clean Green Eats, came out years ago. And watching somebody traumatize another one, it changed my whole life. It was like what you talked about earlier. I had to almost wipe my forest clean or my plate, or my life, or my landscape, whichever way you want to look you at it. You had to break the emperor's vase. <laughs> or the queen over here. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This show is all about building the ultimate lifestyle, right? And a huge part of that is optimizing not only your sleep, but your sleep environment. So I'm super stoked to tell you guys about Altera Pure, who make the highest quality, organic, pesticide-free, non-GMO sheets and bedding that I've ever discovered. A lot of stuff on the market is actually pretty fake ass. I got to tell you, uh, I've looked into this a lot. It's actually very difficult to find high quality, truly organic cotton. So Altera Pure is doing it right. I've got them myself on my bed. They are insanely high quality. And it's a very great company because they really support the environment, social sustainability, and they're absolutely transparent. So I want you to go to their site, alterapure.com. And when you get over there to pick up some sheets, you can use the code lifestylist and save yourself 15%. So go to alterapure.com. That's A-L-T-E-R-R-A-P-U-R-E. Enter the code lifestylist and save 15%. And now back to the interview. We have to stop talking about food or I'm going to get really hungry soon because I, I, all I ate today, by the way, was a bulletproof coffee and, and, your, and your delicious cookie. But I, I want to cover one thing, which I think is crucial yeah. from the health perspective. Uh, unless a fish is huge and has accumulated a bunch of toxins from the ocean, uh, I think the fish is just one of the, I mean, for me, I can't, it's not even, I don't even like the taste of fish so much. It's just when I eat it, my body and my brain light up and go more, more, more. Yeah, it's yes, nutritionally yes, yes. packed yeah. with nutrients. But I, yeah. do, I do try to eat foods that are uh, 
seafood that's smaller on the food chain, right? So I'm sardines. Not, yeah, yeah. I mean, sardines are disgusting. They taste worse than cat food um, that's been regurgitated Have you by had a cat. cat food that's been regurgitated. Oh, I've smelled it. Um, <laughs> but you know, I eat wild salmon, and I eat, I love oysters. Uh, I don't think sardines are that bad. I think that you need to meet somebody like me. Well, who you knows, need to put them in real food for me. I eat them out of the them. can, like on an airplane. I like them where like I, that. I almost, they almost want to land the plane and kick me off because. <laughs> I stink up the whole cabin. But, I um, like them like that. You know what? You need to just, um, when people learn how to cook, it's the greatest resource that you could actually give yourself and others that you love. As Bourdain used to say, it was the single most giving act one could do for another next to fellatio or before or after, depending on who you are. Because everybody damn, likes different things. That's but a that's tall order. true. This is really what the book's about. So there's only one section in there that's about nourishment. The rest of it's like I'm getting to how these. to live, no, I've got how these. to thrive. But food, as you and I, well, See, we really I took, can't talk more about food. Well, no, I want, I want to cover this one last piece. Luke's lying. He just made these all up right now. Well, what's funny is, is <laughs> the, the summary that you just went yeah. through is the same thing that's oh, in my notes. Awesome. Uh, oh, so, so you, that's why you want to get off of food. Well, because there's more and I, and I want to get it all in before the time. But okay. in, in conclusion of the Japanese way of eating from the health perspective and the longevity perspective, because this really fascinates me, it's so much seafood. Uh, sea right. animals and sea creatures. It is. But it's sea vegetables. It is. And this is what's missing, I think, from a lot of our diets. And that's why years ago, I stumbled onto this um, highly mineralized uh, seaweed soup. There's <laughs> sea vegetables I out the yin-yang. The first man I've ever met in my entire life, and I have many chef friends that has ever told me about seaweed soup. I, I... Dude, it's it's. I believe the way I make it, I mean, it's an, another conversation. I put some other secret ingredients in there, like <laughs> great grass-fed bone broth and other things that make it even more nourishing. But what I've learned about the sea vegetables is because the ocean is highly mineralized, right? I think there's 87 minerals in ocean water, which is very similar to our blood plasma. It's what makes us tick is all of those minerals, but you can't drink ocean water. So you can get those minerals that have then been transmuted by plants, such as kelp and different forms of seaweed. And this is where we get uh, the iodine and all of the minerals that we're missing because we can't drink the ocean. So you get the fats from the fish, the DHA, right? And then so you, good. And then, and then you get the minerals from the the sea vegetables. To me, that's like the Japanese food. They have it all down. You have everything you need in oh, there. Well, then you yeah. should absolutely take your trip to Japan. So my mother makes a curry salmon with vegetables for me when I come home. It's very simple and easy. Sometimes we make miso curry salmon. So it's simply taking your favorite wild salmon and basting it with a little miso paste and make sure it's organic and non-GMO. That's something we should really talk about is when you have soy products, just make sure that they're organic, bottom line. And then we take a little touch of honey or you could do maple. You can also add a little bit of rice vinegar to it. And then you top it off with some curry powder throw it into the oven. It just needs to go in at like 375 for like 15. Keep an eye on it though. You can also broil it if you like that really quick fix and you need it a little more crisp on the bottom. <laughs> but, you just mentioned the part where I get lost and that is to keep an eye on it. Oh, well, timer. <laughs> one of the, get a timer. Yeah, one of the reasons, I mean, there's many reasons why I've never cooked or 
had an interest in it is because I just ruin everything. That's not I'm like, true. Can we get you a crock pot or like I a, have a crock pot? Okay, you I make, can't fuck I make, shit up in the crock pot. I make chaga tea in the crock pot. Do you fuck up stuff in the crock pot? I honestly, the only thing I've ever cooked in the cock crock pot in a cock pot. <laughs> Don't cook in one of those. Um, the only thing I've cooked in a crock pot is uh, bone broth. I used to oh, make my own, nice. my own I bone love that. broth. That's amazing. But then that got laborious and I figured I could just order it frozen online. So at the end of that, but um, <sighs> no, I, I, I want to talk about cooking and food on the show for other people's benefit. But it's funny because unless I go to a really nice restaurant or I'm dating someone that's fantastic at cooking, I just, to me... Eating is kind of like going to the bathroom. It's very, very utilitarian. I, that's why I just use a Vitamix. I'm just like, give me calories, whatever it. shit I need so I can move on with life. I don't actually have a lot of, uh, I don't value food other than just for its utilitarian purposes. I know I'm weird. My heart is crushed over it's, here. Other I'm, than the fact that I love that you use a Vitamix because they're my favorite for many reasons. It's the best quality blender I've ever had and used throughout kitchens professionally and domestically in my house. <laughs> it's always the number one thing. I, if someone's like, hey, I want to start getting into eating healthy, that's yeah. my number one thing. I, I'm like, Luke, take 600 amazing. bucks, get a Vitamix, and then anything's possible. And life begins when you get a Vitamix. <laughs> life I also begins at Vitamix. wrote a book where we said, quote unquote, like at the push of a button, like everything is going to change. It's true. I'll give you the book. I have to remember to get it for you. Um, but truly... If, if people want to overhaul something different into their diet, um, I do think cooking is necessary because it's the one resource you have where you can change your whole life through simple ingredients. And you do cook. You make that seaweed soup, well, you know, and you're me. I saw your pantry. <laughs> like we, I can still help with those little things, but it's so easy. You just saute up vegetables in a pan together with a little bit of the gomabura, again, the toasted sesame oil. You add your veggies of your choice. You can add a little bit of shoyu, a little rice vinegar to that, a tiny pinch of sugar and, and toss it. That's the way the Japanese do it. Set it aside and take out your salmon, pair them together. If you really want a side of quinoa or brown rice or something like that, go for it. But it's, and then we always make a salad together. That's like our thing. And it's become my family's anthem. And also being Californian, you'll find a thousand of the recipes in here that it's non-conventional Japanese where I add avocado to the soba noodle salad made with tahini paste. I add avocado Those to my ramen. so good. I'm telling you, and I don't want to, you and I can both, <laughs> we're allowed, we've done enough where people know we're pretty humble deep inside. Like I did photograph this book on my own too. Wow. Which was the scariest thing. The photography is beautiful, you. no joke. A girl who came from the front of the camera can learn how to do the back and Luke is doing the exact same thing. So one of the things that I try to train women to do now if they want to be like a badass bee is learn skills. If I can go both ways, and I don't mean sexually, I mean with equipment, they all sound sexual at the end of the day, but you know what I mean. If you can go in front or in back of the camera and do them well, or in front of the back of the computer, like I can edit, I can write, I've penned six books. I've been an editor at many magazines on the masthead. Like if you're real deal and you can also speak in front of an audience and conduct a room, those skills are so valuable. And again, like I learned those from my Japanese mom and my Polish American dad, like they wouldn't tolerate me being an entrepreneur until I could prove to them that I could survive on my own. And I would be ashamed to ask them for anything now, which is why 
simple little things like making that salad together, making that curried sand. It's like I prize. My sister's in London, so we only see her like five days out of the year, the four of us are together. And, you know, still being one of those girls who wants to be single because I enjoy it. I truly love my life the way it is. Like, it's nice to have a partner, but they completely shift your world. And until I find somebody of value, I want to stick to what I know, which is I love cooking. I love writing. The podcast has been so great. I never thought in a million years that people would give a fuck about the shit that happened to me when I was a kid and all throughout. I mean, as a kid, I mean like in my 20s. And uh, sorry for all the cursing, but it's true. Like I didn't think anybody gave a fuck about all my losses, all the bad days, all the no's, all the motherfuckers who did horrible things to me. And I mean, I take you take notes, you know? I'm like, oh, that's funny. You want to be my friend on LinkedIn? Fuck you. <laughs> like, seriously. You don't think I fucking forgot? You know what I mean? Come well, on, Luke. I, I do. And I, I think that uh, one of the purposes of this show and the work that I do is to let people see kind of behind the curtain when when you've achieved some degree of success in whatever industry you're in or whatever endeavors that there is... Um, a shadow side to everything and there is a struggle and it's it's so much work and i think we, i'm a generation or not a generation but year a few years older than you obviously um but there is i think because of social media and stuff there's this glossy sheen that everything has yeah. and i mean i've hired a lot of millennials uh, at my fashion school and if any of you are listening um i'm not necessarily <laughs> talking about you but it's I, Lauren and I, my partner, uh, she's 10 years younger than I. So she's in her late 30s, I guess that would be. And um, we always joke about millennials. It's like, uh, you know, I want to get a part-time job as a CEO. <laughs> you know, that's of the millennial course thing. it is. You know, it's like the, the entitlement. <laughs> and so I, I love showing the hard work and like how much you really have to hustle. I mean, I did a, um, I did a uh, time-lapse video before you oh, came over awesome. showing me setting up all this gear. And it takes me an hour. The time-lapse video will be an Instagram story that's like 30 seconds. But it's like, this doesn't just magically happen. So it's I think it's great to show people the hard work and dedication needed to be successful. And yeah. also that life still happens. You know, I've been meditating for 20 years and I, I get my heart broken and things don't yeah. go my way. And I doubt myself and I feel like a loser sometimes. And scared to send that email because they're going to reject me. I mean, I go through the same shit. I was in $100,000 worth of debt. I've never talked about that on the show, but there it is. Um, and I'm down to $4,000 in two years, you know? Shit just got away from me. I just was a dumbass with money. And so that's the next lesson. But having survived that and, mm. and overcome that in the wabi-sabi <laughs> you know, tradition, it's like now I can tell someone that's like, what? I live off credit cards. Like, no. Here's how you don't do that, and here's how you get out of that. You know, and so yeah, I love the transparency that you're that you're uh, bringing to the table with your content, and I I feel that it's just so healthy. And and having seen how so many of us are kind of going, oh shit, it's safe to kind of come out and show who you really are and the real struggles. And there's this domino effect, and this happened to me when. Um, sorry, I'm going a little rant here, but it struck a chord that's meaningful to me. But in terms of my um, past with addiction and stuff like that. I never told anyone that shit. I was super anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. Especially publicly. I mean, no way would I like talk about my sordid past because it was gnarly. 
But then as I saw other people publicly coming out and talking about the things like that, that they had overcome, it was sort of like, oh shit, you can do that? It's safe. And then I've seen other people talk about their childhood trauma and current shit that they're going through in a public way. And I feel that's so healthy because it opens up the, um, the floodgates for other people to feel like they can discuss these issues, which would have had so much shame attached to them previously. And the shame and the shadows is where the healing gets stuck. That's where, as a culture, we get stuck in dysfunction and neurosis and addiction and codependency and all of the weird shit that we humans deal with, you know? Yeah. So it's cool. I support you and your, you know, and your transparency and talking about that, which we didn't get much into that actually. Um, but on your podcast, you do a lot. And that's kind of what I'm leading to. I listened to three episodes and I'm like, oh shit, damn. She's just like, hey, here I am behind the curtain, which is cool because someone might look at someone like you that's written six books, you're on TV and you're beautiful on Instagram and the photography's perfect and everything's perfect. But like you said, on the other side of that, it's like, oh shit, I'm totally human and dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. Okay. I digress. I want to talk about before we wrap up, because I know you have to be back in San Diego soon. And sometimes a podcast turn into three hours for me if I'm not uh, cautious. But I want to talk about a couple of the lifestyle things, if we can whiz through uh, some of the things that you cover in the book that are lifestyle related outside of food, because I love these principles, uh, such as gaman, I think is one of them. Tell us about that. So gaman is the tome of great resilience in Japanese. So the best example that we can use is in 2011, the tsunami and the earthquake simultaneously with the power plant hit Japan and it claimed many lives and it devastated the entire world. And we watched Japan line up in these formations and just stay quiet. And they also received snow and aftershocks and nuclear like reactors going off and things like that nature fires afterwards. And what you saw them was you saw them practicing gaman, which is the art of great resilience and humility and enduring. So I'd like to think that if my life is a race, it's very long and it's very wide and it's deep. And I have yet to even hit like mile one. And I'm not even sure of the length of it yet because it's it's like God gave me a incredible set of experiences to move like from one leg to the next. And I'm just following them and I'm not really worried, but I do preface to many young women and men too that want to become a writer or a journalist and become successful at it is that the one thing that kept me going was gaman. Japanese mothers will tell their children gaman if they're hungry and whining and complaining or if they want something like a toy or something shiny. Gaman. I'm going to start saying that to Cookie. Gaman, Cookie. <laughs> Gaman. Just scream it at her. She's so good though. No, she is. She's, She's sleeping over here. No, honestly, I won the lottery of like well-behaved dogs. She's, She's absolute so cute. precious angel, yes. But like endurance is a, it's a key factor. Like there are many times on the podcast where I'll burst into tears and I'm not sure where it comes from other than 
um, me taking my mask off finally, there's a persona and a person and I, I can't really separate the two and I really don't like people telling me what to do. And so as a true artist would do in, in good faith and good form is I would eventually try to separate art and commerce as much as I could. And endurance was the key. Gaman was the key. Uh, Gaman also means to be very resilient and graceful. We learn that New Yorkers are quite resilient through times of trauma and struggle. And we're almost always on edge because of something. But oh my God, because of all the EMFs in that damn city. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's also just um, so, part of the culture. It is. No, it is. Yeah, it is. you move there because the it's the structure of the energy that attracts so many of us to each other and to the city. It's a character in itself. Like I typically am just dating New York. I know we keep saying San Diego, but that's where I grew up, guys. Mom and dad's house. <laughs> I'm just visiting. Yeah. But the art of Gaman is a whole chapter in the book. And then what about this Kurashikata? Kurashikata. Kurashikata. What's that? Where did you find that in the book? I find shit. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> did I just stump you? You're like, yeah. wait, what did I write? Well, I thought you were going to say, Kyotsukete, Kurashikara. Chotomate. It doesn't even say that it's part of here. Did I just pull that out of my ass? Yeah. I mean, unless you can remember what section. Oh, you're saying lifestyle in general. So uh, that's like, Gambate, Shikata Kanai. Kurashikara is a, a overarching tome for lifestyle. But what I write is gambate, kiyotsukete. Like I write tomes under the lifestyle umbrella, Got if it. that makes okay. sense. Yeah, that's so my it's like podcast. A, the lifestylist it's a, would be the umbrella and then all of the details and guests are within that context. Well, then I guess you could say this is the kureshikara podcast. But yeah, I write not just on lifestyle, but it's more of the subjects under lifestyle, which include nourishment, which is the Eo So like Eo Shoku is an overarching part, but it's really about Ryori, which is cooking. Sorry, I, it's very confusing. And it still obviously is to me as I'm like learning. No, I, li I like it. And I just, <laughs> I think I just like to say these words or try to pronounce them, <laughs> to be honest. When I was taking my interview notes, oh I was like, hmm, this is a cool word. Let's dive into this. There's something about uh, the Japanese culture that I also really uh, have always been attracted to. And that is the self-care rituals, shiatsu massage and the you know, hot springs and spas and steam baths and that whole reverence for the body and self-care. Could you talk a little bit about those practices and how they're related? So the onsen is what you're chatting to on the hot springs. That comes to mind first. So in Japanese culture, um, hot spring baths are quite popular. They separate men and women typically. Wah, and what wah, you will wah. do... Well, they don't want any of that like... Hanky panky. Like, yeah, because they're not <laughs> even having sex anyway. No, to, so. be, to be honest, <laughs> sometimes... I mean, my number one hot springs preference is just the ones in nature where everyone's naked and it's just whatever. But if it's in like a spa, it's... I don't know how to say this without sounding homophobic. When it's separated men and women, yeah, it can get it can be uncomfortable at times to be like a naked guy. I've had wow. a, I had a strange experience in a Russian 
spa in New York, which I'll tell you off air. (laughs) (laughs) But but I like being naked in the hot springs because it feels awkward to wear a bathing suit. I I just like being naked outdoors everywhere. But in spas, the naked thing's a little bit weird depending on if it's, you know, gender mixed or not. But obviously you're not going to have like a hot springs that's in a, you know, in a, in a, business establishment. Oh, they cover them quite well. Yeah. yeah. They you go if you stay at a um like say if you stay at a Japanese like hotel or it could just be like a Japanese inn, you can ask if they have an onsen, which I typically tell people don't stay there unless it has an onsen. So even the um the monks out in Koyasan yeah, the onsen oh. is like a Japanese hot spring, but it's oh, not amazing. Are there a lot of them in Japan? Yes, they're they're quite prominent because it's the way that they release stress. Right. So they go travel, they go see nature, they do foraging together. That's like something they really enjoy doing. Forest bathing is shinrin yoku. Oh yeah, that's, that's I Japanese wanted to ask term. you about that too. Yeah, and then well, you really stopped me earlier. I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's my job. Like my mom. Oh my God. I'm having nightmares of my mom. Like, what do you call it? Like quizzing you? Yeah, on because your... she has flashcards. She has worksheets. Like she's Are a Japanese serious? teacher. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's so my right. whole life, it's been like, you're not American enough. You're not Japanese enough. Just all of it. But yeah, the um, the onsen help people to relax. And then what was the second thing we were talking uh, about? Shiatsu. Oh, forest, forest bathing. Yeah, there's there's three and things. And massage. And I got this because I used to go uh, into Little Tokyo in downtown yeah. LA 25 years ago. And there was this amazing shiatsu massage place uh, where you lay down on the floor and all the little mats were all together. And it was like, you know, a freaking 117-year-old Japanese lady would just work you over on the floor and then they had a cold plunge and a hot Was tub. it cool? Oh, it was amazing. It was legit. Yeah. And then they had a sauna. And you go do the whole rounds, you know? And that was like... Wow. I mean, I'd been in hot springs my whole life, but that was, you know, the city version of that. And I was like, oh, this culture has this shit figured out because... Definitely. And it was predominantly because the country was closed off for thousands of years up until very recently in the 1800s, about the mid-1800s, 1860 or so that the country was opened back up to the public. So we haven't really experienced a fully westernized culture because Japan is still living one foot in, one foot out. So we do prize things like shiatsu massage. Reiki is also another oh, form. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Shinjin yoku is forest bathing. Even, there's even a translatable word for the light between the trees when you're next time in your forest bathing. It's called komorebi. And it really does refer to like that little glistening flutter that's in between. Oh, it's incredible. That's so awesome. There, that's why we wrote this book. My mom and I, I put together everything and then she helped me edit it for three years side by side. And she was like, I, I really don't have time for this, <laughs> but it has to be the correct information. So by default, she would never steer me wrong. And I had two Japanese senseis in food, Yukari Sakamoto, Elizabeth Ando over in Tokyo. And I studied food under them. And then I had uh, about two Japanese editors, Yukari also, and then Natsuko Aoki in New York. And what we did is we put a little Kaizen behind it. We continuously improved the book together for three years. My editors at HarperCollins were amazing. It was so unique for them because they had to trust us that the kanji, hiragana, and katakana was correct. 
And I had to trust the process as well, like being somebody who's also still learning a lot about the Japanese culture, but yet I'm Japanese American. What was appropriate? What was honorable? What would be of good use to everyone? And then having these other cultures from around the world say, we want to buy the rights to this book and translate it was, I believe, God in the universe's way of saying, Candace, it doesn't matter if mainstream media pick this book up or not. Mainstream but, media doesn't matter anymore. I, I know, Lou. <laughs> They're dead. But, Thank God. Don't say that. That's not true. I'm uh. going on a lot of these shows next week. Be quiet. I love them. They're, they're where I came from, though. You no, know what I, I mean? Me, so, I like, listen. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, you too. You, what are you talking about? Hollywood fed me for 17 years. I just love independent media where we can have these long form conversations and we don't have the confines of being beholden to advertisers or any sort I of... Know. I agree with any you. sort of political agenda of an entity that's owned by and honey, other entities with agendas. They should be so stoked that true artists are now able to express freely and openly. I mean, I'm still not being as open sometimes when I'm doing these. And it's not that I'm hindering a thing. It's it's just the fact that I want to be aware that I like to say that grace is in your actions and it's not in what you say. And so the way that I folded my cards after somebody traumatized me and broke my heart. And I agree with you. People still come to me too. And they say, I can't believe that that happened to the cool girl on Top Chef. They like say that. I did not say that. Somebody said that to me yesterday. I said, in my heart, it sure did. And I'm a living and breathing example of somebody who basically came back better. And you did too. And you and I are showing people now, not telling that you can do anything. I mean, it's so crazy to look back at that race that you're running when I couldn't afford shoes like just seven years ago or rent. And when I could only afford a bed frame and a mattress in my room in Brooklyn with my roommate and I begged her to let me pay her for rent in like two weeks. And I did. And my parents took the bonds out that they bought for me when I was like five. And I drained my IRA account. And I lived off of teaching cooking classes at the Brooklyn Kitchen and writing stories for different magazines. And the magazines paid me nothing. Most were free. I don't even know, Luke, how I paid rent most months when I was going through that time. But it is so nice to watch the turnaround and yet be so shaped by humility because just last month, I had to ask a friend for a loan. And if people want to know what it's like to live by example, it is, it is living and breathing as an artist that knows that if the birds have food tomorrow, like why are we going to worry then? Because I'd rather be showing people my truth and my honor and my story in real life in real time with you than I would be being a fake person living behind an Instagram account and never sharing people the depth of where I've gone and where I'm going. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, value and meaning in one's life that can be derived just from being real. I always say, like, you can say anything about me, but don't call me fake and dishonest. I don't think you're either. No, I know I'm not. One, I'm 100% real. I mean, I just am to a fault probably sometimes, but uh, that's 
that's just a, something that I really value also in other people and probably why I was attracted to having you uh, on the show. is like, oh, cool. Here's a person who's very shiny on the outside but is letting it all uh, show through. And there's, as I said earlier, there's meaning in that, you know? And um, realness to me is just something that's so valuable and it's uh, in some ways so rare, you know, in media... But there's I, a new paradigm of media. That's what I'm saying when I'm, I'm halfway joking that okay. mainstream media is dead. It's like, well, the old paradigm of like, for example, advertising on my show, I'm not advertising. I don't have like a commercial, come on, hey, buy Toyota. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh God, who would ever, why would you ever listen to that now when the host of the show can be like, hey, check it out. I got a Toyota. I know it's crazy. It's pretty awesome. I used Did to have, you? No, I didn't. But, <laughs> oh, but, we're um, so going to write to them now, Luke. <laughs> but, but do you know what I'm saying? It's like that there's a way that commerce and everything can work with integrity if there's authenticity behind it. And I just, I'm so fascinated by what's going on culturally right now. I agree with you. Because we have, we're in charge of our own media. You can have your YouTube channel. You can have a podcast. It's so crazy. And right now, at least at this point in history, you can say basically whatever you want, Um, you know, barring any backlash from being not politically correct or whatever. But in terms of, you know, having an obligation to a certain perspective. I mean, we can have these conversations forever and someone will probably listen to it. But that said, I promised you that I would watch the time and I'm now f- f- 14 minutes past what I said I would allow you to do. You got to drive to San Diego. It's 344. So if your commitment there at six is a real commitment, I think we have to wrap it up. Oh, well, we could do a part two because I think one thing to really discuss is I'm a little bit confused Because when I came out with my pod, over like 200 people blew up the reviews in in like a few weeks. And the number one thing that was written over and over and over verbatim was real, so real, most real, real as fuck. Can't believe how real. Thank God. (laughs) It's about time. Best, most real. And I said to myself, I'm like scratching my head at home, like in my pajamas with my cat next to me, who's been my cat for 16 years. And I'm like, you know, single, living it up, doing my thing as a writer in New York. Everybody thinks I have it made. And I just blew blew up everyone's pod because I was like, I'm just going to tell people what happened to me. And it was it was like seeing a media personality that was so I I judge on Iron Chef and and beat Bobby Flay and I was on Top Chef and I go on Today's Show and Doctor Oz and um, E News and I'm grateful for everything I do in front of the camera because I do it well and know I'm fucking good at it, but I I also know that they only see me for five minutes looking like a perfect Asian Barbie doll and so I think when they saw me take my mask off and tell them what was been going on behind the scenes it was like this big finally. And what worries me a little bit is why are we some of the first people that are overwhelmingly being told how real we are? That worries me more, <laughs> yeah, than, yeah, I, yeah. more than I'm stoked. Right, right. I hate to say that, but it means that people have only been watching fake people for their entire life and they're, and they're kind of bummed out about it or, or angry about it or upset. It's like everybody got a cheap deal that is so funny. I've I've noticed that too yeah. because uh, the most of my reviews, whether they be on iTunes or just people emailing, uh, the the biggest compliment that I usually get on whatever content I'm making is the authenticity, the realness, the vulnerability, the rawness of just telling it like it is. And to me, I'm always kind of thinking, well, duh, like 
what, how, how else would one be? <laughs> like, of I course, don't know. It's, it's a given, but I've had that same thought. It's indicating I, to me that there's so much fakeness going on elsewhere that it's a breath of fresh air for people well, to saw experience your realness. nude photo in the forest. I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, wow. Oh, Earth Day. What was Earth Day? I mean, you know. <laughs> I was like, in my head, I was like, who took that photo? <laughs> Creative use of emojis. Oh, it was so good. It was I so think, good. You know, I think one of my brothers took the photo, actually. It's oh not, my God, a, that's not, a very, hilarious. not a very good story. Well, I mean, I, I've taken some too where people were like, who took that photo? I'm like, what am I like team members? You know, even if it's like, yeah, yeah. I just started to not care anymore, you know, because I was like, look, I, I believe that everybody should do what makes them feel good and really not care about the likes as much as we can, as at least as much as you can try. Because at the end of the day, everybody cares about likes. Everybody wants to be liked. In Japanese, another thing we can talk about eventually is ikigai, the purpose in which one has in a community carries a lot of breadth and depth in how long they live and how deep they live their life. And that is another thing that we need to cultivate more of. I understand I'm a messenger. I got the fucking memo. Like I, I'm the, I get it. I'm a bridge between Japan and the US and Hawaii and all these amazing places. There's a reason why I'm, you know, I need people to also lay off on women who don't want to get married and have kids right away. We need to be able to live our lives too in order to feel fulfilled. And I think that a lot of things that you said are true. I, I mean, I couldn't have put it better. There's a paradigm in media that is shifting right now. And actually, we're the pioneers doing it. And it is so lovely to have been able to do them all because you and I got very lucky. We got to start in fashion, modeling, TV, media, old media, new media, and beyond. And it's like, we always say pioneering ain't easy. You know, we're going to take a lot of backlash. But at the end of the day, if we're the front line, I could die tomorrow and be really happy with everything that I did. I don't necessarily want that is what I'm saying, but I'm saying I'm, I want to be of great use and I'm trying to figure out, even if it's you guys writing to us, like tell us how we can be of better use because it makes me sad that that many people wrote, thank God you're <laughs> real. Know. How crazy. It's sort of like, uh, yeah, it's like when... Thank you for being honest. It's like, well, duh. Of course, you're supposed to be honest. It's there was so this Chris. Scary. There was this funny Chris Rock skit years ago where he was talking about mothers that um, he's bra- amazing that brag about taking. This is an old skit back from mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe even their 90s, or early 2000s, and he's talking about mothers that brag about taking care of their kids. Oh my <laughs> he's god! Like you're supposed to take care <laughs> of your damn kids. You know, it's Why one do of those they things. do that? I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's funny. For some reason, that always stuck in my head because I'm like, yeah, a lot of people want credit for shit that it's just, you should be doing anyway. And it's the same in, in sobriety. You know, it's funny that to me, it's just, I mean, I'm very grateful and it, it is phenomenally miraculous that I'm sitting here and I don't have to ingest crack cocaine or heroin right now just to have a conversation with you. It's pretty awesome. I've been set free from that particular uh, malady, whatever it was. It sucked. But I'll just tell someone about it because it's part of my story and it's yeah. interesting and maybe inspiring for someone else. And people are always like, oh, that's so great. Good for you. Wow, you're such an awesome person. And to me, I'm like, 
no, dude, you're not supposed to be a junkie. You know, it's like, I don't get extra credit for just doing what a normal person is supposed to be doing. Like, you're not supposed to burn your life to the ground. But you overcame that battle and struggle. And that's what they're commending you on. I guess, I guess so. Yeah, that's extreme. I, I always feel like, well, why would I take, you know, I'm, I have the gratitude for it and the appreciation for it, but I don't feel like there's brownie points due because you're not supposed to ruin your life anyway. I'm just doing what, what, like you're someone, I don't imagine you're like addicted to heroin. So you don't get special credit because you're not addicted to heroin. You're just called smart. And if someone offered it to you, you were like, oh, that's a bad idea. So you just don't do that. But I wouldn't say like you're doing something that fantastic because you're not on heroin right now. You know? Well, the the other thing you can look <laughs> at though is, is it, you know, people is that saying. lose like have weight gain and weight loss. Like we commend them for for losing weight. It's one of the it's one of the areas of our culture and American culture that we really we prize people when they lose weight. When maintaining a healthy weight is probably the more it's actually just as hard, you know, um, it's like a balance and our culture chooses to patronize like alcoholics and junkies and drug addicts in a very, in mental illness in a very sad way, you know, like that's one area that we have a lot of work to do. In. And I think the reason why I promote that I, I've been running like six miles a day, or I try to double down on yoga because I just, I'm at that part in my life where I'm like, you know what? So many brands come to me that are related to either beauty or fitness, and it's not just food anymore that i I've got that memo as well. And a lot of times we think that like somebody's going to come knocking at our door and handing us the golden ticket and saying, "Charlie, you've got it. Now go do this job. it's not it's not going to happen. you You will have to build the door. You will have to build the window. You'll jump out the window. I created the podcast because it was my window. I didn't have anybody knocking on my door. And this thing was so prized to me in my heritage. It would be a disgrace if it wasn't done well and given to as many people to help. So I do think that you are so incredible for overcoming that time. I didn't know that. And I think people that are Kintsugi and Wabi Sabi that have overcome and that show the distortion in some form is now a piece of artwork or is looked at as more favorable or more beautiful. And in Japan, we, yeah. we believe in that. Yeah. No, I, I'm halfway joking, you know, when I talk about like, it's not something that you take credit for because you should just be doing that anyway. It's sort of like, you know, hey, guess what? I didn't rob any banks this week. Well, good, good for you. Uh, You're not supposed to do that to begin with. So there's that side of it. You're a much more handsome, cooler, edgier, and way, way more fun to hang out with version of like a Tony Robbins. (laughs) Hey, I I appreciate that. I I love Tony. I love Tony. You know, one thing cool, dude, I... I know I'm, we have I to feel go. Like I'm sabotaging. We can do a part two. I will be in traffic interview. in a really yeah, so gnarly we're, we're way. Gonna, we're going to get you out of here. But one thing I really I liked about Tony Robbins recently, I went to one of my first events with him, and I signed up for another one too. I really enjoyed Good. it. But uh, I lo- I was shocked by how much he swears. I, yeah, a lot. Because I always feel so guilty for swearing on my show, and I have gotten uh, the only criticism I ever get from listeners that take the time to criticize the work I'm doing, which is fine. It's mostly constructive, is that I swear too much and that I talk too much. 
when my, like when I'm interviewing someone. Have you heard my pod? And then, yeah, I have. And but oh. then I heard Tony Robbins. He's like, yeah, and you got to be a badass motherfucker to make it. I was like, whoa, dude. Okay, cool. <laughs> So you can. You were sitting there acting innocent while he was saying so you, that. I'm like, okay, so you can do that and still be the guy. So, uh, so there we go. No, he's great and he's helped so many people. But I'm just saying, I just got like a, I got a moment there where I was like, oh my gosh, like that. This is just how I, I'm feeling about you. There is a whole generation out there that is in dire need of our help, and I am committed to helping them, whether I want to be this person or not. It's not really up to me anymore. That's the same thing, sister. I hear you. Well, Candace Kumai, thank you so much for joining me on the Lifestylist thank Podcast. You. It's been super fun. Like you said, we're going to have to do part two. <laughs> yeah, I'm, there's so much I'm halfway, juicy stuff. To do. We didn't even get to talk about fashion. Oh I, my God. And listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm halfway through my list and I was going to... I had at the end, I was actually... I was going to grill you a little more in your personal life and stuff like that. Um, so we're definitely, oh, right. definitely going to have to do um, a part two. Oh uh, perhaps we could do it in New York we and can. get that vibrating New York energy in. But thank you so much for, for joining and uh, we'll get you out of here and get you on your way to San Diego so your next interviewer doesn't get pissed for me keeping you too late. So <laughs> thank you. with that, we'll check out and I'll, oh. I'll see you soon in New York City. Thanks, Luke. I hate to say I told you so, but I told you that was going to be a fun-ass episode, right? God, we had a great time. You guys, can you imagine what it's like? I mean, how fortunate I am to just be able to meet up with fascinating people like Candace and just sit down and have a conversation. And that's kind of part of my job in life. I just can't believe it. I'm so stoked that 47 years into my life on planet Earth that I finally figured out what I really like to do and I think I'm pretty decent at doing and that is having engaging conversations with people and then finding unique ways to market those conversations to the world. In this case, getting you to share this and every episode of the Lifestylist podcast with a friend. It's very meaningful, you guys, if you can just like screen grab this, text it to a friend, copy the link off your player if you're that tech savvy, email it to a friend, post it to your Instagram stories, your Facebook page, whatever you can do. Really means a lot because God damn it, I don't want to stop doing this. And I can keep doing this as long as the show keeps growing and you can really help to make that happen. So thank you so much for listening. Candice, if you ever hear this, thank you for the cookies. I ate so many. I think I almost made myself puke. Not because they weren't good, but just because I have no self-control. So Hint, never bring sugar into the, my home again. Because <laughs> I literally, oh God, I don't care how healthy a sweet is. I just, man, I am a crackhead for anything remotely sweet. I could take a bottle of like the grossest stevia and chug it like a shot of whiskey. I just go hard. But anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about something important. Our show sponsors, dude, if you're in Los Angeles or you're visiting Los Angeles, I'm just going to tell you straight the F up. You've got to get over to Tonic Wellness Boutique. It's on Beverly and uh, their website is tonicboutique.com. This is an all-in-one like biohacking stop that you can't miss, especially if you're into the aesthetics, into beauty. You know, the stuff they do over there for your skin, for weight loss, you know, as as I have talked about previously, I did the the um, cryo skin, which is where they melt the fat off different parts of your body. And that shit works, son. Like, I got to say, I wouldn't say I quite have a six pack yet because I don't work out hard enough. 
but my stomach is a lot flatter after doing that. And that's something that I've wanted to get rid of for a long time. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm not enough of a gym rat really to like be ripped. So that little cheat was helpful. And then of course they have the clear light saunas over there, the dopest saunas, and they have the really big ones that you can stretch out in. And they've got the cryotherapy. They have the whole thing. So you do the hot, the cold, and then you just feel good. You look beautiful. And um, and Posetta, the owner over there, is just really an amazing person. She's a great mom, a businesswoman. She has great style. She's super smart. She's hella sweet. She's really good at what she does. And so I'm just very happy to support those guys. So that's Tonic Wellness Boutique on Beverly, right there in West Hollywood. You can go to tonicboutique.com. If you live in LA, you should be there at least once a month, if not every week, go hook it up. If you don't have room for a sauna in your house or you can't afford a sauna, dude, this is the nicest place in LA to take a sauna. It's beautiful. If you're traveling to LA, right when you get off uh, the plane at at, um, JFK, wrong airport, wrong city, you're probably flying from JFK, (laughs) flying to LAX and drive to Tonic Wellness Boutique, take a sauna, do cryo, you're going to be a new person, okay? Then let's talk about Biostrap. That's biostrap.com forward slash Luke. If you use the code STORY, you're going to save 25% off on one of the most accurate and thorough wearables that you can wear to track your uh, biological markers. So you can wear the Biostrap on all sorts of different types of workouts and figure out what's going on with your body during different activities, whether it be yoga, CrossFit, lifting weights, swimming, doing a goddamn ice bath, doing cryo, taking a sauna. Uh, It tracks your sleep very accurately. You can wear it during meditation to see how deeply you go into meditation. It's really, really cool. It's just a real low key, uh, you know, attractive looking wristband that you put on like a kind of like a thin watch. You could say like a skinnier version of an Apple watch. So that's biostrap.com forward slash Luke. 25% off, very substantial discount using the code STORY. Then we've got Altera Pure. Now you guys know I talk about them all the time because I love them and I can't forget about Altera Pure because every night I put my head on them. That's right. Altera Pure Sheets. You can go to alterapure.com and save 15% off your totally rad organic bedding using the code LIFESTYLIST. What's up next? That was a handful. No, a mouthful. That's right. An earful for you, a mouthful for me. This Friday, we've got a bootleg broadcast. I recorded my talk at Bulletproof Upgrade Labs in Santa Monica a couple months ago. And, you know, the sound wasn't what I wanted it to be because the live recordings just never match up to the studio ones. But I really put my heart out there, man. I laughed, I cried. There was tears in the eyes of the audience, dog. It was a realness festival. We got down and dirty into, you know, the real depths of spirituality. It was a very meaningful night for me. I really connected to the people there, most of whom were Lifestylist Podcast listeners. So, you know, when I plug my events, that's why you guys, I want to come out. I want you to come out so I can meet you. I want to hang out with y'all. It's super fun, you know, getting feedback about the show. And I always get great suggestions from you guys when I meet you in person and hear about your struggles and your victories. And uh, that was just a great night. So that comes out this Friday. It's a bootleg broadcast bonus episode. And then next Tuesday, I've got Danielle Laporte. And that one is just like, wah, wah. I'm making that wah where you like make that kiss sound and do that Italian thing with your fingers. It's just mm, delicioso. Amazingly profound conversation with Danielle that we did at the Longevity Now conference in Anaheim a few months back. And I've been sitting on that one for a while because I had to sequence it 
in just the right spot. And uh, this was the right spot in September. So I'm really excited to bring that one to you. So thank you so much for listening and for supporting the show. I'd love for you to join my Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. If you're one of the people that is so kind to follow me on Instagram at Luke Story and direct message me and ask specific questions for recommendations about your life or your health or meditation or any of the the many topics that people ask my advice on, uh, I would love for you then rather than asking the questions and direct messages on Instagram that I'm likely to miss, if you just join the Facebook group by going to Facebook and searching The Lifestylist Podcast, I've got a private group. And at the time of this recording, uh, summer 2016, we've got 1600 people in there. They're listeners of the show. And I answer, I want, you know, I don't want to promise this because I don't know how long I can keep it up. But at 1600, I answer or at least comment on every single question in there. So people ask things about different physical challenges they're experiencing or what's the best B vitamin or do you have any techniques for sleep or meditation or whatever it is. And I really work hard to uh, contribute in there. And the reason that I prefer to do it in the group is because it's private, but still the people in the group benefit from the answer. That's the thing when people send me a message like a DM on Instagram. I mean, it's cool and I love getting the feedback and I like connecting with people, but it's really difficult to take the time on my phone to like type out a really long answer. And sometimes I do that and I'm like, wait, shit, this is only helping one person. If they just ask the question inside the Facebook group, 1700 people could potentially be getting the benefit of the answer, which has taken me, you know, 47 years or at least the last 22 years of really diving into all things health and wellness and spirituality, you know, the 1700 people could get the benefit. So uh, if you direct message me on Instagram you, before, you probably noticed if you asked a technical question or advice about something, I'm like, listen, thanks so much for the question. I really appreciate it. Please join the Facebook group and I'll answer it over there. And I just have to do that because I just, I don't have time to even keep up with direct messages on Instagram. I'm not trying to sound brand new, but it's just true. There's just too many to keep up with. I'd be sitting there all day. But if you ask in the Facebook group, I can answer it for the benefit of all. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening. Catch you this Friday for my talk at Bulletproof Upgrade Labs and then Tuesday with Danielle Laporte. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.